This parable we read in Matthew 20 is shocking, and it might just change your life. Listen to what God has to say about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a usual daily wage, the vineyard owner sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those heard about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. But when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the landowner replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we didn't come to hear a human voice, a human word, or a human opinion. We came to hear your voice and your word alone. To that end, O oh God, pour through me today the gift of preaching, please, that these words might literally become your living word to us. And we know they will, O oh God, for we pray with confidence, boldness, and assurance in the strong name of Jesus, the risen and the reigning Christ. And may all God's people say, Amen. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, tells a delightful story of two vandals who broke into a shop in the middle of the night. They didn't steal anything and they didn't break anything, but what they did wrecked havoc in the store the next morning. Do you know what they did? They rearranged all the price tags. Next to the $20,000 mink coat, they put a $200 price tag. And next to the $200 sweater, they put a $20,000 price tag. And then they hid in the back of the store. And with kind of a diabolical glee, they wanted to see the faces on the unsuspecting shoppers as they came in the next day and found all of the price tags rearranged in the store. Now, William Temple says that an evil force has broken into God's world and rearranged all God's price tags next to the things that God says are of inestimable value, like family, like children and grandchildren, like marriages, like relationships, like lasting friendships, like developing a relationship with God and learning how to pray and teaching your children and grandchildren to pray. Those things God says are of inestimable value, but beside that, our world puts a low price tag. 
Next to the things that God says are not really that important, like power and prestige and popularity and possessions, our world puts a very high price tag. William Temple says, Christians are on the face of the earth to rearrange the price tags back the way God meant them to be from the beginning of time. In other words, to turn an upside-down world right-side-up once again. It isn't easy. Jesus points this out in these parables. These parables are disturbing. They are shocking. If these parables don't disturb us a little bit, if they don't get at some of the issues of life that really haunt us and that we live with every day, we're not really understanding them because the parables are not calling us to live life by the status quo, to live life by the standards of the culture. The parables are calling us to live life by another standard, God's standard, not the world culture standard or the world standard, but by God's standard. And these parables are shocking. And this particular parable makes calls into question our Protestant work ethic and justice and labor. In order to understand it, we must realize that this parable probably is talking about what happened in the month of September. In Palestine, every September, grapes would be harvested. Grapes would become ripe on the vine, and there'd be enough grapes that were ripe that the harvesters could begin to pick them. But you had to pick them by the 1st of October, so you had about a two-week period from the middle of September to the 1st of October, because October was rainy season. And if, when that rainy season started, if the monsoons came, that whole crop of grapes could be absolutely ruined. So a smart vineyard owner sent people out into the vineyard to work, but also hired day laborers to make up a little bit more in the workforce so he could get everything done before the 1st of October because you never knew when those rains were going to come and they had to be harvested by that date. When Suzanne and I lived in Atlanta, we often lived three or four miles away from some places where day laborers would congregate near a shopping center at the back of the shopping center, these day laborers would congregate and they would sit there and they'd smoke a cigarette or they would, they would have a cup of coffee and they're waiting to be hired and they're hoping somebody in Atlanta, a merchant or a, a landowner or somebody will call them and hire them for a day's wage, for a day's work. But if they didn't get hired, they and their family didn't eat. So to be a day laborer was a precarious position. So this vineyard owner was out at 6 o'clock in the morning at the break of dawn, 6 o'clock in the morning, and hired these day laborers to work for an entire day, and the day's work in that day was 12 hours, 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening. And for that, the, the vineyard owner said, I will pay you one day's wage, which was known as a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. Today, it's the equivalent of about $75. You're not going to get rich making $75 in a day, but it's enough to feed your family. And frankly, it would have been enough in that day to feed the family for, say, three, four, five, maybe even six days, depending on how thrifty you were. So a denarius, a day's wage, was a pretty good wage in that day, particularly. So the landowner goes out at six in the morning, and he hires those workers to work for 12 hours for a full day's wage. He goes out again at nine and 12 and three, and he sees other workers, and he realizes, boy, time is of the essence here. I got to get these, these grapes harvested. So he hires the people who came at 9 o'clock, at 12 o'clock, at 3 o'clock. You go out into the field, and notice the vineyard owner said, I'll pay you what is right. He never said, I'll give you a denaria, denarius. He said, I'll pay you what is right. And we don't know what that means, but the implication is 
that it would be probably a fraction of a denarius, maybe a half or two-thirds or one-fourth of a denarius, but not a full day's wage because they didn't put in a full day's work. Then he goes out again in the 11th hour, this vineyard owner, and he sees people in the marketplace at the 11th hour, and they haven't been hired. Why are you standing all day here idle? And they said, because nobody has hired us. In other words, now picture this person standing there for 11 hours and not been hired, and he knows that when he gets home that night, his family isn't going to have anything to eat. They took the money that they got. The, the book of Leviticus in Deuteronomy says, a wage owner cannot keep wages for day laborers overnight. They have to pay the wage at the end of the day. This guy knows that the 11th hour, if he's not hired at 5 o'clock, he's not going to be able to take that money and buy food on the, on the, the market on the way home. So his family isn't going to have anything to eat that night. So this 11th hour person is desperate. And the vineyard owner goes out again. And you might even say in compassion, he says to this 11th hour worker, Go into the fields also. But notice he never says what he'll pay him. He never even says if he pays him. He just said, go into the field also. And this person is so delighted to go into the field. Well, evening comes, six o'clock comes. It's the end of the workday. And all the laborers line up. Now, here's the interesting thing. The laborers who went to work first were usually paid first. But this landowner turns the tables on them. He rearranges the price tags. He says the people who came to work last are going to be paid first. So that's a shocking thing. Then the manager for the vineyard owner hands this person who only worked one hour, he hands him a full day's wage. This was shocking. It was unheard of. You didn't get a full day's wage for one-twelfth of a day of work. You just didn't do that. Who is this vineyard owner anyway? But you can imagine the people who are working three hours or six hours or nine hours, and especially the ones who work 12 hours, are giving each other high fives, and they're giving each other fist bumps and blowing it up, and they're thinking, man, we're going to get a lot of money here. But the ones who work three hours, six hours, nine hours, they also get a full day's wage, which actually was more than they thought because they thought they'd only get a fraction of a day's wage. But the 12-hour workers, I mean, they're licking their chops. They know they're going to get something great, and they get a day's wage. And instead of saying, well, the vineyard owner did give me what the vineyard owner said he would, they are mad, and their focus is on comparing themselves to the guy who worked one-twelfth of what they worked and got the same wage, and they're mad, and they said to the vineyard owner, look, we went out into the scorching heat of the day at noon and one and two and three. We were out there in the scorching heat and we worked all day and we got the same. And this person who came and worked at the end of the day for one hour, they got the same as us and they're mad about it and their focus is on comparing themselves with someone else. Former President Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. When you compare yourself to somebody else, it robs you of your joy. Harvard Business School and the Cal Berkeley School recently spent a lot of money on studies about human flourishing. What makes human beings flourish? What makes human beings happy? And both Cal Berkeley and Harvard concluded that the two attributes of life, the, the key to happiness, the key to human flourishing, are gratitude and contentment. In other words, if you're grateful for what you've been given, 
And if you're content with what you have, that's the key to a happy life, to a human flourishing kind of life. But these people work 12 hours, they're mad because their eye, their focus is not on what they have to be thankful for, not on how content they are with what they have. Their focus is on what this other guy got who only worked one twelfth of the hours they worked and got the same thing as them. You know, it occurs to me, if only this landowner had used envelopes. He wouldn't have had this problem. But their focus is on what the others got. I want to lift up one issue and one question out of this text. The issue is comparison. And the question, did you hear it, was when the vineyard owner said to the man who was so mad, who'd worked 12 hours and got the same as one who worked one hour, friend, I did you no wrong. Do I not have the right to do what I want to do with what belongs to me? Let that question lean against you just a little bit. And when we focus on the issue of comparison, you've got to admit that people in our culture really often compare ourselves with other people. We compare our jobs with other people. We compare houses to other people. We compare our cars to other people. We compare our standard of living to other people. We compare our appearance to other people, our family with other people. I stayed with some really good friends in North Carolina several weeks ago, and they have a lovely home. They invited me to stay in their home. They have a gorgeous back porch. We had dinner on their back porch, and the sun was setting over the North Carolina mountains and the forest that was right below us. It was an absolutely picturesque, gorgeous setting, and it was a wonderful home. I had a very comfortable room with my own bathroom. It was a wonderful place to stay. But the next night... <laughs> We went to somebody else's home for dinner, another friend, and we'd never been to their home. Well, their home was, frankly, two or three times bigger than my friend's home. And, and also, frankly, they had not one porch. They had three or four porches in their home, and it was decorated exquisitely. Well, all the, And we all complimented them on their home. But on the way home from dinner, my good friends in the car, they were lamenting how sad they were that I had to stay at their home instead of at this other home. And they said, Tom, we're really embarrassed. We live in a little shack compared to what these people live in. Now, their home was a lovely home. And I tried in every way I could to tell them how wonderful their home was. I complimented their, their pictures on the wall. I complimented their, par their, their carpet. I even complimented their bathroom and all the accessories. But it didn't do any good because, see, in their mind, their home did not measure up to the standards of that other home. Does anybody relate to this at all? See, we compare everything to somebody else but Roosevelt says comparison is the thief of joy we compare in the culture and we all know that but so often we don't realize that people in the church often compare their lives to somebody else's life I mean those people who come early to the faith and, and join the church or commit their lives to Jesus Christ when they're 15 and they've got 50 or 60 or 70 years to serve God in the church but then some people come late in life at the 11th hour, and actually, the people who come at the 11th hour experience God's kingdom, and those who have worked in the fields of God's vineyards for 50, 60, 70 years, they also get the kingdom. It may not seem fair. Years ago, when I was 28 years old, I became senior pastor of a church in New Jersey, in New Providence, New Jersey, and I had been pastor there for two years, and things were going really well, and I was learning a lot. I'd never been a senior pastor before. I had a lot to learn, and I was really learning as much as I could. I was over my head in this ministry, but I was learning as much as I could. And, and a woman waited to see me after church, one of our long-term 40-year members, and 
our church had been growing like a weed, and I was delighted with what was happening. I was learning a lot, and she said, Tom, have you got a few minutes to talk? I said, Grace, I sure do. Uh, what do you want to talk about? She said, well, I'm mad at you, and I'm mad at this church. I looked at my watch and said, gee, Grace, I don't think I have as much time as I thought. <laughs> I've got a funeral. It could be my own. <laughs> I said, what's the problem? She said, well, you know, I've been in this church for 40 years. I said, yeah. She said, I used to know everybody's name. I said, yeah, I've noticed that. She said, but today... I looked three pews behind me and in front of me, and I didn't know anybody who was sitting around me. This used to be my church. I said, well, Grace, what's the problem? We're taking in a lot of new members. She said, of course we're taking in a lot of new members, and these new members are taking over my church. <laughs> Sometimes it's not easy to be a preacher, I'll tell you. But she was mad about it, and what she wanted was she was losing her church the way it used to be. She was in the church early in her life, and she'd been there for 40 years, and she'd worked all these hours. And then these newcomers came. She'd worked through the scorching heat of the day, and these newcomers came when things were going a little better. She had been there in the tough years when this church had some tough times, and now things were a little better, and they were getting the benefit of all of her hard work. And then she said to me, but I was in this church for 15 years before I was elected an elder, and my husband was in the church 20 years before he was elected an elder. Some of these new people come in, and in one or two or three years, they become an elder or a deacon, they become a leader in the church. And see, what she was saying to me was she wanted her church to be the way it always was. Many churches in this country want to be the way they always were. But it's a different time today. I've been a pastor of local churches for 35 years, but in the last decade of my life, I've become a consultant to churches. I've had the privilege of working with hundreds of churches all over this country from 24 different denominations and every church really wants to be the way it used to be. They want, they want to be the way it was. And I always say to these churches that I consult with as their motto, that their motto is, if 1956 ever comes back, we'll be ready. <laughs> and that's the way it is for many people. They, they want to go back to the past. But I'll tell you, one of the great things I love about San Marino Community Church and Jeff O'Grady, your phenomenal pastor, I hope you know, and I know you know, I hear it from you, but how blessed you are to have Jeff O'Grady. He's one of the most outstanding leaders in the United States of America. But what I love about him and the session and your magnificent staff, Jan and Marilyn and all of them on the staff, is you're not just resting on your laurels. You don't just want this church to be what it's always been or go back to 1956. You want this church to go into the future. And you actually want to attract people to come to the church in the ninth, 10th, 11th hour. You actually want a church that is willing to reach out to new people. And so you dare to have a traditional service at the same time you have a contemporary service because you know that one style of worship doesn't appeal to everybody. And you're trying to reach those SBNR people, spiritual but not religious. You're trying to reach the nuns the people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. You know, when I was growing up, and maybe when you were growing up, you, you, you uh, would believe in Jesus Christ first, then you would join the church, then you would serve. Today, young people want to serve first. 
They, they want to serve first, and then they may or may not want to join the church, but their belief in Jesus Christ often grows out of their service. And by having these mission trips all over the world that Jan and others have led, and by having mission and local social activism out in the streets of Los Angeles, your church is reaching out to the world in a wondrous way to bring in millennials, to bring in young adults, and they're going to be the future of the church. But see, if you compare your church to the way it used to be or the way it's been or the way you want it to be or go back to the past, that's not the point. God says, rearrange all the price tags and find fresh new creative ways to minister to new generations. And that's what you're doing. Because Jeff O'Grady wants everyone to experience God's grace. And grace is unmerited favor. And that leads to the question that landowner asked. I didn't cheat you, he said to that one person he gave the full denarius. I gave you exactly what I promised, but don't I have the right to do what I want to do with what belongs to me? See, it's, it's easy in the church sometimes to think that, that we're the vineyard owner. It's easy sometimes to think that, that it's all about merit and longevity. And the point is that that's a, a cultural price tag. God puts the highest price tag on grace. Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the price for our sins to give us grace. It's all unmerited favor. In other words, what the vineyard owner is saying is, it's not that I love the, the, the one who worked one hour more than I love you. I love all of you. In fact, all of this is grace. I didn't have to hire you in my vineyard. I could have gotten other people to work in the vineyard, but I chose you. Some are working 12 hours, some nine, some six, some three, some one. But I love all of you, and my grace goes out to everyone. But sometimes we think we're sovereign. We're in charge. We're the vineyard owner. I love the story. It sounds like a joke, but it's a true story. I, I actually heard Billy Graham talk about it in his book. But years ago, George W. Bush... 43, and his mother Barbara Bush were in the White House, in the residence, and they were talking ironically about who's going to go to heaven, what you have to do to go to heaven. And George W. Bush said to his mother Barbara, you know, Mom, I believe that it's only Christians that are going to be in heaven, that you've got to believe in Jesus Christ in order to go to heaven. Actually, the Bible says that. And Barbara said, you know, George, I, I think you're being too narrow here. I think God's bigger. I think, I think there's going to be some surprises in heaven. There may be some Jews in heaven. There may be Muslims in heaven. There may be people that we were just surprised made it to heaven. And George said, no, no, Mom, you got to believe in Jesus Christ or you don't go to heaven. And so they're having this heated argument about it. And Barbara Bush picks up the phone. And George W. Bush says, Mom, who are you calling? She said, I'm calling Billy Graham. And she called Billy Graham, she had him on the phone, and she said, Billy, George and I are having this debate over who's going to go to heaven. And Billy said, well, actually, Barbara, you know, the Bible does mention believing in Jesus Christ to go to heaven, but here's my question for you. Who are you and George Bush to be talking about who's going to heaven anyway? That's none of your business. <laughs> you know, God is sovereign, and you are not. I mean, it may come as a shock to you because you think you're two of the most important people in the world, but God loves a lot of people as much as God loves you. In other words, there's nothing special about you. You don't have a, the hold on heaven. Actually, 
heaven is all about trusting in God. And so it's not your business to figure out who's going to be in heaven. Your business is to witness to God's love every day and to radiate God's love and grace, unmerited favor, to all the people of the world. And you've got a great opportunity in your offices now to radiate God's love and grace to everybody. Don't you wish you had Billy Graham on speed dial? (laughs) He could solve a lot of our issues. But see, the point is, it's all about grace. The people who thought they worked 12 hours and the one who worked one hour, they, were, they thought they were better than the ones who worked one hour. The people who worked 12 hours thought they're better than everybody because they've got longevity. They've been there the longest. They work through the heat of the day. The point is we need to rearrange the price tags of life. Life is not about success in worldly terms. Life is not about acquiring. Life is not about possessions. Life is not about comparing. Life is about giving. Life is about grace. Life is about loving people who don't deserve it because we don't deserve it. Life is about loving and graciousness and reaching out to people who may seem like they're the last and bringing them up to the front so they feel like they're the first. If we've spent time with Jesus, if we've spent time with God, if we've spent time understanding God's generosity and graciousness, some of that generosity and graciousness rubs off on us, and we become instruments of grace to others. Hubert Humphrey died in 1978. He was a candidate for president of the United States in 1968, but after he lost to Richard Nixon, he kind of got into some other areas of public life, and then, frankly, he became very ill with cancer, and he died. But near the end of his life, he thought to himself, you know, I need to make some amends with people, and he called people who had been his political rivals, and he made amends with them. Humphrey knew that Richard Nixon had resigned because of Watergate in 1974, and that he'd never been back to Washington, D.C. And Humphrey thought to himself, you know, Richard Nixon may never, ever, ever be invited back to Washington, D.C. He had to resign his office. He's in California, but he's probably never going to go back to Washington, D.C. Again, he'll never be invited back. So Humphrey got a great idea, and he called Richard Nixon and said, Richard, it would mean a lot to me You were my political rival. We had a lot of good debates. It would mean a lot to me if if when I die and the doctors say it won't be too long now, it'll be just a few weeks, maybe a few months, but it won't be more than a few months. It would mean a lot to me if, if you would come to my funeral service. It would mean a great deal. And I'm going to tell my family members that you're to receive a special invitation. They're already getting invitations ready, and I want you to get a special invitation. And Richard Nixon came to Hubert Humphrey's funeral in Washington, D.C., and he sat in the back with, surrounded by Secret Service. For the year, of course, is 1978, so President of the United States Jimmy Carter and Rosalind come in, everybody takes their seats. They come in last, they come in last, and they sit in the first row. And as Jimmy Carter walked down the aisle, he noticed Nixon in the very back. And when he sat down with Rosalind, he said to her, honey, I'll be back in just a minute. And he walked down the center aisle and went to the back and said to former President Nixon, 
Mr. President, welcome back to Washington. I know this is your first time back, and I just want to welcome you home. And Mr. President, it would honor Rosalind and me if you would sit with us at this service for a man who was your rival and actually also your colleague and friend. Richard Nixon got up, took Jimmy Carter's arm, and they walked arm in arm down the center row, and they sat in the first row. Now listen, Richard Nixon didn't deserve that. It was a pure act of grace. But Jimmy Carter didn't deserve to be in the front row either. And, and Nixon probably didn't deserve to even be there, but the point is, it's not about what we deserve. It's not about rewards. It's not about success as the world defines success. It's about grace. It's about the grace of a God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And when you experience that grace, the people who sit in the back are in the front. The last will be first, and the first will be last. It rearranges all the price tags. So you all know that an evil force has broken into our world and has distorted all God's price tags. And instead of the things that are the most precious, we have elevated things that really aren't very important and we've lowered the things that are of inestimable value. Your calling, San Marino Presbyterian Church, and mine, is to rearrange those price tags of God back the way they were meant to be from the beginning of time. In other words, our calling as Christians, followers of Jesus, is to turn an upside-down world right side up again. May it be so.